Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Hello, everybody. Today's episode is brought to you by The Great Courses Plus. It's an online streaming service. Have you heard of this? It's pretty cool. It allows you to expand your knowledge on a huge variety of topics. It's convenient. You can watch or listen wherever you go, whenever you want. You can learn about virtually anything from Shakespeare to medieval Europe to the mysteries of human behavior, photography, you name it. There's unlimited access at The Great Courses Plus to thousands of lectures presented by experts who are not only knowledgeable, but passionate about their subjects. The Great Courses Plus has a fantastic course that I recommend starting with. It's called Life Lessons from the Great Books. It offers entree into the world of masterpieces from Macbeth to Brave New World to the Odyssey and more, exploring wisdom that can be gleaned from each story and the different ways that it can be applied to any culture or stage of life. The Great Courses Plus is an enriching addition to any human life. So here's a special offer for you. Are you ready? An entire month of learning, unlimited learning for free. Enjoy life lessons from the great books and so much more by going to thegreatcoursesplus.com slash other PPL. Start your free month trial right now. Sign up at thegreatcoursesplus.com slash other PPL. That's thegreatcoursesplus.com slash other PPL. Okay. You are not alone. You have found other people. You and I have a friend in common. Every stupid thing that a writer could do, I've done. I think it's really beautiful. Jesus, dude, what a struggle, you know? It was incredible, you know, it was like your head exploded seeing what was really there. And now here's your host, Brad Listing. Just one person at just one time. How's it going? Welcome to the Other People Podcast. I'm Brad Listy. I'm in Los Angeles, California. I'm sitting here. I'm very pleased to have Tommy Pico on the program today. He is a poet. He is a gifted performer of his own work. He's a screenwriter. He has a podcast called Food for Thought. He curates or, uh, a reading series with Morgan Parker called Poets with Attitude. Does a lot of different things. We talk about all of it. Tommy Pico, in just a moment, his poetry books include IRL, which is out from Birds LLC. That won the 2017 Brooklyn Library Literary Prize. And then uh, his other books include Nature Poem, Junk, and the forthcoming Feed. All of those from Tin House Books. He is a recipient of a Whiting Award. Did I mention that? He's been profiled in Time Out New York, The New York Times, The New Yorker. And uh, he's sort of bi-coastal. He lives in Brooklyn sometimes. He lives here in Los Angeles. He was kind enough to come over and talk with me. And you're going to hear that conversation right now. Here he is, folks. This is Tommy 
Pico. I'm kind of on a perpetual book tour, to be honest with you, which is a great life to have because it means that I can afford to just like stay at home and write for the rest of the time. But it means traveling a whole lot and being based in New York, it's a lot easier to get around other places in like sort of the Northeast, in the Northeast in general and not have to like drive because like the train and the bus system is so extensive. Um, whereas like living out here, I have to do a lot more like plane travel and stuff like that. So what do you mean by... Uh like a perpetual book tour um my books have fortunately um they're being taught a lot in at universities and so every fall every spring semester i am out on the road to you know uh st louis to chicago to tampa to all these schools um and i kind of just live out of a suitcase a lot of the time and they invite you yeah yeah you yeah, get yeah. paid mm-hmm Oh, that's great. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it subsidizes my life as a writer, um, but it means that I heard this quote, I think it was from Sarah Paulson, and maybe she was um, talking about somebody else, but she was like, I don't get paid to act. Um, I would do the acting for free, but I get paid because I miss birthday parties. I miss, you know, uh, weddings. I miss best friend birthday, like stuff like that. And I feel the same way. Like I would perform for free, but it's like, like I miss a lot and you know, I don't have like a romantic life. It's hard to get traction with anybody when you're on the road all the time. And it's kind of like the theme or like the subject of my fourth book, the one that's coming out in the fall, which, which is, is like, which is called what feed okay. <clears throat> out from tin house fall 2019. Um, and it's a lot of it is about being a traveling performer and perpetually traveling and the excitement of that, but then also the loneliness of it. There's like that adrenaline rush. You do the performance and then you're back in some weird hotel, right? Yeah. And I'm just kind of like sitting there in, in a bathrobe sometimes with a glass of vino verde feeling a little bit like, oh, I've made it. And also feeling like I wish my friends were here. <laughs> I mean, I talk to a, like a lot of a lot of my friends are stand ups and they have very similar relationships because, you know, their life is also a lot of I'm subsidized by universities and comedy clubs and they'll be in um weird comedy condos or in like you know motels like so whatever um and that it's so hard to know what to do with the adrenaline afterwards i understand why people like get would just get fucked up or you know get drunk or whatever because it, it, the experience of being on stage in front of so many people and interacting with them and like uh the the kind of the kind of like uh, mental acrobatics and physical acrobatics that you have to do in order to, for me anyway, in order to get to that point of being up in front of people, because I'm just very naturally shy. <laughs> um, but in order to do Are that, you really? Yeah, absolutely. But in order to do that and then to enjoy it, um, and to give the audience a show, um, then it, it's, it used to be a lot harder for me to put, put it on, put that performance energy on. And now it's just much harder for me to take it off. Like, I don't know what to do with myself afterwards. Like I'll get off stage and I'll be like shaking and not be able to talk to anybody. And then I'll like be laying in bed later, like unable to go to sleep. And I'm like, dang, what is going on? I need, there must be an easier way of doing this. Is it you? Like, that's the thing. Like, cause I feel like <clears throat> I've talked to some writers who in a very like normal way, I feel like normal writerly way are shy, introverted, but then get these invitations to read or perform and discover that they do have this performative aspect to themselves. And I guess the question is like, part of it's like, well, you're being invited mm -hmm. and there are people showing up mm -hmm. and they're expecting some kind of performance. And they could literally be anywhere else, but they chose to be there with me in that room. So I want to give them something. So I guess the question then is like, how do you, if your natural inclination is towards shyness and introversion, 
How do you create a performative self that is authentic? Do you yeah. feel it's authentic? I do. I, I mean, it's authentic to itself in the sense that when I first started out, I remember like I, I, I would get like I would shake and I would turn red and I would like sweat profusely. I was unable to just do do it as me um, because in, in a way it's like very exposing. And so if I got on stage and I thought I was doing it as me, Tommy Pico, I don't know that I would be able to go through with it because I would feel like people were seeing me. But if I get up there and my voice goes up a little bit and I'm like, ah, hi, Tommy T. Like I call that person Teebs. That's like my alter ego. He's the one that I write my books. The perspective of the books is from him. Um, I mean, and we're very similar in the sense that we inhabit the same body and we have, exhibit the same characteristics, but his inclination is towards um, uh, confrontation, right? Whereas mine is a little bit to go inward a little bit more. So, so you have like an alter ego. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Because I was, you know, it's interesting. I've heard you say in other interviews or I've read in other interviews where you like, I, I kind of have to trick myself into writing poetry. Mm -hmm. And it sounds like you're tricking yourself into performing. Absolutely. So it's like you, you create these circumstances or you, what do you, what do you tell yourself? You tell yourself that you're Teebs? I In the beginning, I think more so I had to just like pump myself up. It was more of like a ritual or a routine or I had to like get into like some kind of headspace. Now, I don't know how to explain it other than... I am myself until the moment the curtain comes up or whatever, metaphorically. And I could just, it, in a snap, I feel, I feel it like, like some kind of, some kind of string from the top of my head just pulls me upward. And all of a sudden, like I'm him, you know, and you can do it. And what's like, what are the key differences? Like one, I guess Teebs is like extroverted. Yeah. I, I guess I, I have a tendency to, um, to second guess myself in general. I think probably a lot of people, if not everyone does. And sometimes that, um, the, the inclination to second guess myself leads me to a place of complete and utter static and inaction. Cause I don't know, like, do I dare to eat a peach? You know what I mean? Um, but Teebs is like, Hey, he has no, he doesn't second guess anything, but also he talks so fast that if he misspeaks, he can like, just keep going on from there. So in a way it's like a, a kind of, of, uh, unfurling of a kind of, of, of energy that I kind of keep locked down deep inside of me that I don't let out that often. Well, and it's like people coming to see a performance don't want to watch somebody be indecisive on stage. No, they don't want to no, no, watch no. somebody like quibble with themselves. Yeah. Or constantly apologize or whatever. Um, but then um, it's weird because a lot of the friends that I have now, uh, it, w through the podcast that I have food for thought, um, or who I've met since publishing books, they don't necessarily know that that is a new, that's an in intervention, like a new innovation of my personality. Like I used to like for the majority of my twenties, I was so shy and like, I could not get on stage. And I realized that the difference between selling, you know, uh, hundred books or selling a hundred thousand books was me getting on stage and selling it. So I had to like kind of do a boot camp with myself. You know, I, I did a lot of like, I started going to, um, what do you call it? Uh, a singing teacher and I would do vocal exercises and just to be able to project, I could not project to the back of a room. Um, I had a mentor named Pamela Sneed. She's a poet and an uh, actress and uh, activist and a bunch of other stuff. And she really taught me a lot of uh, performance um, basics. And uh, I, I also took an improv class just because I heard that it would, it was good for like loosening up that static, you know, and then the, their tagline, it was at UCB and their tagline was like, think at the top of your intelligence or something like that. And that taught me how to be decisive in the moment. Um, 
and and also just getting on stage as often as I possibly could. I created a reading series so that I could get on stage every other month. Hey, everybody. If you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. So you really like systematically <laughs> attacked this. Mm-hmm. And you also had like this insight that you're not going to sell books unless you... Pro- As a poet, that makes sense. You've got to get up in front of people. I think if people see you in a... Um, engaging, possibly funny, entertaining way, mm-hmm. perform the work, they're more likely to connect with it. Yeah. And, and I thought that, I mean, I don't think that's the duty of the quote unquote poet, but it became my duty to myself and to potentially to, for people who would read my work. I mean, I think it's audacious to assume that you're going to have a reader anyway, but if you do have one and they do show up, I do want to give them something. I started a reading series in New York at the Ace Hotel with Morgan Parker called Poets with Attitude. And that was our main goal. It didn't matter what poetic style you had. It didn't matter what you were writing about or how old you were or whatever. It was more so like, do you give something to the crowd? And so we'd have um, poets come. We had like three every season. They would come to the Ace Hotel and we would just, they, they had to be people whose performance style we liked. I mean, and it didn't have to be like my style. It didn't have to be like Morgan's style either. I mean, we're more confrontational uh, readers, but it was like, if if somebody had figured out their voice, you know what I mean? In, in performance, like those are the people we wanted to bring in and to display and put on stage. Do you do, you do crowd work? Um, not, I mean... More so when I'm doing a live show with the podcast with Food for Thought, that's more interactive crowd wise. I mean, they're the point of having a live podcast is so that you interact with the crowd a little bit more, right? Um, but I've learned how to um to be um to take cues from the crowd, right? Um a lot of times, though, because what I'm reading, it's from long work. So there's not that break in between poems that like, like typical poets have. So it's like I'm going to be reading like for a stretch of 20 minutes without break, without a break in between it. Yeah, because you work long form. Poetry. Yeah, yeah, my exclusively in the long form. <laughs> <laughs> I was so happy when I when I discovered what my thing was, like when I found my medium, you know, it was kind of like finding your medicine that worked, like some some routine or something that works for you. And I was like, that's why I've been so restless and unsuccessful and looked over in all the other types of writing that I tried to do before because I was I was trying to fit my voice into a medium instead of bending a medium towards my voice. 
you know. Right. How did you how did you find it? Well, I think again it was like a lot of small interventions that accumulated over time. One of them was uh taking the improv class that led me to um, then I, I took a workshop with Ariana Rines and it was called Ancient Evenings and, and the idea it was it was very much in the spirit of improv but the idea was like we would read some kind of ancient impenetrable text uh, then we would spend some time um, just kind of writing to ourselves quietly listening to music for like five minutes then we wrote for ten minutes and then we shared what we wrote and it was kind of a, a the experience of having to write something in the moment and then share it terrified me but it terrified me into writing um clearly and also being adherent to the reading that we did before even if i didn't totally understand it i realized that whatever it brought out in me whatever i read in the text whatever it brought out in me i was already thinking those things you know that was in it that was my interpretation that's how you build a reading and then building a reading and understand what understanding what i was thinking then i was able to synthesize that into writing so that's why um with long form i knew that I could write every day as long as I fed myself with something, as long as I fed myself with something challenging um, and paid attention to the thoughts that were louder than others. Then I could. So so giving myself a daily writing practice via this ancient evenings thing was a part of it. So so your daily writing practice involves first reading, Mm -hmm. reading or watching something or, you know, uh, interacting with the world in a meaningful way. So whether that is deep reading a book or uh, taking myself to a film or uh, listening to music, but like not not putting it on in order to tune out, but putting it on in order to tune in. Um, cause, cause again, like then I just find myself having random opinions and then I turn that into writing. So that was a part of it. A part of it was kind of um, deciding to read longer work. Um, I had not done that before, probably the age of 29, because I was afraid of long work. I was afraid of my inability to pay attention to it. I mean, short poems are hard enough. When like, you say long work, you mean long poems. Long poems, yeah, yeah, yeah. Like um, book-length poems, primarily. Um, I thought that it was totally beyond my capabilities as a as a reader and as a human being to pay attention to anything for that long. But once I let um, let loose my inhibition um, and and really interacted with it, I found a new level of appreciation for poems because it was something that lived with me. You know, it grew with me. I took it around in my day, and my day became a part of the work, and I became a part of the work. And I found that experience so transcendent and unlike anything I'd ever felt before. And then I took a workshop with uh, Jason Koo through um, his outfit called Brooklyn Poets. And we were reading A.R. Ammons. And our challenge was to, was we were reading a, a section of tape for the turn of the year, and our, our challenge was to write something sort of in that style or begin, just begin something longer. And, and again, it, I took my, the, the way I read with Ancient Evenings and sort of the way I performed with Pam and the way that I uh, 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 learned how to be ad, ad, adherent to my thoughts. And, and I, in, in the space of that 15-minute workshop, I wrote the first three pages of what became IRL, my first book. Hmm. Um, and then it was Beyonce's visual album coming out in 2013 on my birthday as I turned 30. <laughs> Literally the second it, December 13th hit, it was all over the place and it was a long poem and I it was a visual it was a visual poem and it was also a, a, a song of, ep- it was like an epic song cycle. Um, and I'm from the Kumeyaay Nation in Southern California and one of uh, the cornerstones of our traditional music is are these things 
are these things called the bird songs, and they are epic song cycles. And so I started to understand that I was actually participating, not necessarily in long poems, but I was participating in bird songs, in the making of bird songs. My dad is a bird singer. I grew up listening to them. They're embedded inside of me. And so I was able to kind of connect something ancient inside of me with something new in the world. And the, the synthesis of those things became my books. That makes perfect sense. Like there's a, there's like a flawless logic to that. Um, it's almost, it's almost one of those things where you look in, like in, in hindsight, like how could I not have seen this? Yeah. I mean, the best thing that that did for me was it gave me a sense of purpose. I understood why I was here. And for an indigenous person, that's really key because I mean, Suicide rates on, in, in Indian country are the highest anywhere in the world. And, and I think a lot of that has to do with not, under, not understanding one's purpose and innovating and making the first new bird songs in 150 years. I was like, that's, I'm here for a reason. I feel like, um, any semblance of, of self-destructive behaviors I had kind of flew out of me with that understanding. I was like, no, I have to be here for a long time. I have to preserve this and I have to keep making this work in the world. That's awesome. Yeah, it feels good. So, okay. So you were raised on the reservation? Yeah. 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 From, I mean, the whole childhood. Mm-hmm. And, until I left for college when I was 18. Um, but yeah, and my dad is a tribal chairman and my mother was like, did the choir. They were both in the like volunteer fire service. I mean, they were very community minded. Like I grew up understanding the benefit of and the value of community. And I think that's why wherever I go, um, community is very important to me. I mean, it's that, not that it's not important to other people, but it's like, I, I can't help but build community. I feel like it's, I understood the importance of having um, like, I don't know. I, w- I want to say something very basic, like like-minded social networks, but something a little bit that that, that there's that there's something sp- almost spiritually, uh, uh, spiritually satisfying about having a community in that way. I think it's no. I think it's essential, and I think it's it's a lost art, like creating community and understanding its value. I think people, most people feel a lot of people, especially. I don't know. I don't want to characterize it as like a predominantly urban thing, but it feels like so many people feel isolated or lonely or Mm -hmm. detached from any sense of real community. That's certainly the case in Los Angeles based on conversations I have. So Mm -hmm. I think people who have the gift of being able to create community are uh, very necessary. And, but it's like, I, I started an art collective when I was in, in Brooklyn in like 2007. Um, I started like this podcast food for thought with some people and, 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 and in making like poets of attitude, the reading series and in just like, and, and, and in publishing and in reading. And I just kind of, I've always been able to kind of accumulate people around me or around the nucleus of an idea, but not in any kind of, um, almost self-determined way. Just, it just happens. Not, it's not accidental, but it definitely doesn't feel like I'm doing it with that intention, but it just kind of happens to grow around me. Well, but you're willing to start things. Yeah. Yeah. yeah absolutely. People and people like are, I think people are, are hungry for it. Mm. You know, if somebody like sends up a flag, just takes that, that action, which yeah. is I think a hard action to take. It's because, because starting it and maintaining it and, and, and the, there are so, all, all aspects of it are difficult. Um, but I haven't found, I, I've, 
I guess my one of my skills is I am able to commit to ideas and able to commit to action in a way that I've never been able to commit to a romantic partner. <laughs> <laughs> um, but it's working out for me so far. Yeah. And so um, I want to go back just before we, we get uh, any further into like your your creative life or your art, artistic life is to talk more about uh, your upbringing because it's fascinating to me. Right. Um, what is it like to grow up? Uh, on a reservation like am i i'm picturing and this is in southern california yeah, yeah, yeah so i'm picturing like is it relatively like suburban no it's rural it's rural yeah 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 but i mean like when you when you say there's like a sense of community like what does it like what does it actually physically look like what does the experience feel like um well i mean i obviously i can't speak for any country in general and i can't speak for other nations and i can't speak for other reservations in san diego i can only speak from my experience on the vhs reservation of the kumyai nation and uh what does it look like i mean asking anybody to describe their childhood is a little odd because it all like it's just so natural for for any one person you know but um it's in the cut, in the middle of nowhere. Uh, when I grew up, it was dirt roads and dirt poor. Um, our fortunes changed a little bit over the course of, of my upbringing. But um, why, why is that? Well, my tribe got a casino. Um, and so then I, that's why I was able to go to college. Um, but there was, uh, there was a lot of... Uh, the, but, but that doesn't mitigate the effects of trauma. <laughs> um, and in a lot of ways, it was a place of a place of limitless love and in a lot of other ways it was kind of a place that could really swallow you in grief if you let it um so that is that's difficult to process i think as a child and to also have this this like this this sense of tragedy and also this incredible sense of comedy <laughs> like my my sense of humor was fermented in that place as much as my eye for the, uh, the, uh, my eye for trauma you know um and so it was kind it was a It explains me. I I feel like any way in which I act in the world that might seem mm, disingenuous or scattered or whatever, it's a reflection of the place that I came from. And I read uh, that your mother, didn't your mother run, uh, uh, was it a pawn shop or a junk shop? A thrift shop. A thrift shop. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that informed your book or junk <clears throat> junk. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, I, I, I was reading garbage by A.R. Ammons and I was also reading the life changing magic of tidying up by Marie Kondo. Right. And now, now, a hit now television a hit show. Netflix television show. <laughs> um, and I, you know, I was raised around junk and I was raised around understanding the value that of things that other people discarded and to imbuing new life into objects. And I just, I mean, maybe all children do this, but I was very prone to giving objects personalities. <laughs> and so um, it was hard for me to think of things being discarded. And I kind of became a little bit of a pack rat as a child. Um, Are you still? I, no, I actually live like, I mean, this is the trauma of living uh, in New York for 15 years. But like, 
when you have to move apartments every fucking year, you really learn how to let go of things. If it doesn't, if it doesn't spark joy, it's out. It doesn't, if it doesn't spark joy, if it's too heavy. Right. Um, for a while there, I feel like I, I was moving so often that I would never put like art on the wall or paint anything or really do anything that would give uh, a, a, an apartment a sense of roots or having like with the expectation that I was going to live there the next year because like landlords are so shady and it's like I've the amount of times that in one year somebody's been like raised the rent $500 and to a, a point that I can't live there anymore and then price me further out it was just like so frustrating I, I never understood one of the things I understood about the freedom of New York was also that like that freedom was contingent on you always being uncomfortable <laughs> and like never feeling like I never felt like I could set down there. So it, it's a, I think in a way it informed my work because the, the restlessness of, of, of long poems, I think, uh, uh, and the, their curiosity and their inability to like land in one place and their, their, their nature as like a dynamic flowing object was really informed by, um, New York and like moving around so off so much. You were literally moving pretty much every year. Yeah. Sometimes I would be in a place for three years. Sometimes I'd be in a place for a little bit longer than that, but, um, it, it was just like a, it, it changed a lot between 2006 um when i first moved to brooklyn and then you know 2016 i mean the the amount of change that happened in the neighborhoods that i lived in was really astonishing yeah well how did you get to new york you you were on the reservation and then you said you were, you were able to go to yeah. college because of the casino yeah yeah i went to sarah lawrence um in in Westchester, it's a little bit further up from the city. It's like like a thirty minute um, metro north ride, um, and I would come into the city on the weekends, and then eventually just kind of move. I mean, the thing is, I I didn't really think I was going to stay in New York. I thought I would move back home, and then um, I realized that I could. Well, I had wanted to move back home because I thought like nobody I knew ever left. Nobody I knew ever stayed gone. So there wasn't really a model for me. I I just figured after the four years, I would move back home. How did you even wind up at Sarah Lawrence? Um, well, I had been writing poetry, and so I wanted to go. I heard it was a really good school for writing. And then one of my best friends had gotten a brochure from Sarah Lawrence, and she that was one of the places that she was planning to go. But then after we graduated, she didn't end up going to college, and I just kind of like went. And I'd always, I mean, for, since I was a child, I'd wanted to live in New York. Like my sister... Um, was in was on broadway in like 95 she was not raised in our house my mother had given her up for adoption um when she was born um but when she got back in contact with our family she was on broadway and uh, we went to go visit her and I, that was like fifth grade and 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 i remember surfacing from like the subway onto the street and just being like i found a place that is as restless as i am i had always like sat on my porch um, on the reservation and, and just kind of like, I'd like look towards like the light pollution of San Diego and just wanting to be there so bad, like wanting to be in the city, wanting to be in a place where things changed and wanting to be in a place where things were like louder or they were m like the idea of like living in an apartment and not knowing the person on the other side of the wall was fascinating to me. Right. You know what I mean? Cause like we didn't have neighbors. You have people down the drive. It was very isolated a place to be um yeah and then and, and and 
when I, I kind of fell in love with New York the first time I went there because it was the answer to the thing that I was looking for, which was like, in a, in a weird way, um, it offers you a lot, a lot of exposure and anonymity at the same time. Right. Because, um, and also it's like people have their own business to mind. So they don't really care that much about yours. <laughs> um, whereas the place that I'm from, everyone is in everybody's business all the time. There's like no, um, there's no privacy. And so the idea of like being in a place where that was like abundant and private at the same time was, 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 was fascinating to me. And, so you were in fifth grade when you first went? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And your sister, who your mom gave up for adoption, was how old when she was on Broadway? Um, I guess she was maybe in her 20s, Oh, okay. So she wasn't 30s. like a child star. No, 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 no. My mother spaced out her kids by 10, 11, 12 years. So okay, it's okay. me, my brother, and my sister. And we are... My brother was um, uh, like a, 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 a caregiver <laughs> when I was a child because he was so much older than I was. So you're the baby. I'm the baby. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um... Yeah, I don't. I I feel like the decision to like be in New York in in a way that like the decision to write long poems it just kind of felt like something clicked and it made sense. And I was like, I this is the place I need to be. So you have like a sense of uh, like a like a, it seems like you have a, a like an attuned sense of knowing when th- something's right for you. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. I mean. I, so many things seem so wrong all the time that when something <laughs> seems right, it's like, I want this. I'm going to like dig my, uh, dig my chompers into this thing. That's good intuition. Yeah. That's, I guess that what I guess that is intuition. I just wish like the romantic thing would happen. That would be nice. I've, I've never really met anybody where I was like, that felt in the same way. Like, Oh, this is the thing. But it just takes one. Yeah. You're still young, right? Well, it, it, yes. I'm young for my age. <laughs> <laughs> Me too. Me too. I'm 43. I don't feel like a, a day older than like 30. Maybe. Yeah. I am 35. I feel like I've always kind of been 23. There you go. I was 23 when I was five years old. I was 23 when I was 18. I'm 23 at 35. That's a good age. Yeah, that's fine. <laughs> why, like, why leave 23? Well, the thing is, like, when I was younger, I was precocious, and now I'm immature because <laughs> right. I've kind of stayed the same age. Now, um, when you talk, like, when it comes to like relationships and stuff like that, like, are you using apps? Like, is that the that's what you're that's what you have to do these days? Yeah, right? a little bit. I, I this Los Angeles is not does not want to eat what i'm cooking i'll tell you that much it's i it was eat like relatively easy for me to at least hook up with people in new york los angeles i don't know this place just isn't it's not an easy town to date in i don't think and i don't and every okay this is like this is gonna sound like uh uh uh, like stereotypical or whatever but i found this to be a city of extraordinary flakes just people who will not commit to anything (laughs) like making plans and then breaking plans that's just it seems like i don't for every five plans that i make with somebody oh one of them actually comes to fruition it drives me crazy for the most part people just don't really stick to their word if i say if i say i'm gonna do something it it is extremely rare that i don't do it yeah i felt that way and the longer that i'm here the more the tendency to flake i really feel it in my bones and i'm just like hoping that other person says that they want to stay in so i can stay in and watch you know great british bake-off or whatever oh i have other no you mean you like when people flake hmm a little bit, yeah. I was going to say, because I have friends who, like, that's their favorite thing. Like, plans stress them out. And so when, in a, like, a social agreement is, like, impending, they get anxiety. Mm-mm. And their favorite thing is when the person's like, by the way, I have to flake. And then it's like, oh, thank God. I don't have to. Well, I mean, yeah, I, I, I do. I, I think quitting things is fun. 
Um, I, I, I love playing hooky, <laughs> you know, things like that. I love quitting class classes and stuff like that. Um, but yeah, I mean, in terms of like romance or whatever and apps and dating and all that kind of stuff, it's never really been my priority. So what is your priority? Mm, writing is my priority. I was going to say, you don't quit on writing. No, no, you no, stick no. to a project. You seem committed. Yeah. Like yeah, you yeah. wouldn't do this uh, interview until after you'd had your writing time in the morning. That's correct. Yep. And I, by the way, you have an assistant. It's gotten to the point where it is impossible for me. I, 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 what, what started to happen was um, I couldn't respond to emails fast enough. Like they would accumulate faster than I could respond to them. You're and getting I, that many emails? I would miss out on opportunities. Like, like I told you, like my bread and butter is doing these college things, right? Right. And it got to the point where like I was, I couldn't keep up with them, and then I would forget that I made one, or like that I was leaving on a Wednesday, or you know what I mean? Just because like there was so much stuff, and it's not just like so. There's like this whole aspect of like being a professional writer, which is like this performance thing. I'm I'm good at that. I'm fine with that. I'll do that. I'll be on the road. I'll be in one place. I'll be in St. Louis on a Wednesday, and I'll be in uh, Vancouver, Canada on a Thursday, and then I'll be in San Francisco on a Friday. You know, I mean, that's fine. I get it. It's it's it can be grueling, but it, like I said, it subsidizes my writing life. Um, but that's just one aspect of it. And then there's like the actual writing part, which is like I have to do that every day in order to get these opportunities. And then there's also like the wanting to be social part of life. And then there's like the wanting to date part of life. And then there's like the other writing opportunities that I have. And then there's like so there's like the poetry one. And there's like the the features writing one. And then there's this like nonfiction essay sort of thing in the clouds and then there's like friends and then there's you know and, and it I, like the email part of life was like sucking up way too much of it and I had and I've been able to make a living more or less like on writing and so I was able to just kind of hire someone part-time to 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 take care of like the 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 um <clears throat> the submission like getting asked to submit places um so like the writing opportunities part of it, the helping me book the the tour sort of part of it, and then like the interview sort of part of it too, like this. Yeah, that's great. Yeah. It's hard to find balance. I would like to know balance at some point in my life. I think everybody would. I would like it. I don't know. I don't know. I, I Maybe I need to get some kind of guru situation in my life. Have maybe you ever I, had one? Um, the closest thing I've had was a mentor. You ever have a therapist or anything that helped oh you? Oh my God. My therapist, Dr. John, is like my lifeline. Like it, I could not have been the person I am now if I didn't have Dr. John in my life. I was going to say, you seem like you seem pretty well adjusted and like somebody who's w- w- done the work. Yeah. And having somebody, I don't know, I feel like I've like in this sort of intuition thing, I've always, or, always kind of known who to listen to as well and learned how to hear the thing is people are talking at you all the time advice is coming through your life or whatever and I, sometimes i don't hear it but um i've at least i feel like i'm really good at getting myself in the space to be able to hear what somebody is telling me um and able to like really incorporate that and and but the thing is it requires a lot of failure too like i've failed so much with dr john but every single one thing that worked i was able to to build on that one thing that what, worked what do you mean failed like you tried certain behaviors or you tried to experiment socially in certain ways and it just didn't work out or like yeah i mean um um getting on stage bombing you know i bomb way more than i'm great but i've gotten to the point where i'm cool with it (laughs) or like my ratio of bombing to like good performances has uh has decreased so like i bomb a lot less but especially in the beginning i couldn't i couldn't 
I couldn't get a good performance. You know what I mean? I had to do that in front of people. Um, I couldn't do that on my own. I couldn't do that abstractly. I couldn't do that in my mind. That had to be stuff I did in front of people. And that was hard. And, and so like that, that's a part of it. The, the dating part of it, the putting yourself out there part of it, the asking people out part of it. Um, that's like rife with failure. Also just like, um, figuring out like how to be a person in the world. There's, I feel like there's a lot of ways in which like I've tried different, um, huh. Uh, you know, like trying to like going out to different places and being like, that's not my place and figuring out what my places were like, that was a lot of trial and error too. You mean like, like which bars or which like literally and metaphorically. Yeah. 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 Um, you know, what part of the day is best for me to write? You know what I mean? Like, what should I do? Little things like, what are my favorite movies? What are the things that I like? Because like for the most part in my twenties, all I did was date people and I, really submerged my personality into theirs so what they liked became what i liked you know what i mean like their favorite color was my favorite color their favorite band was my favorite band um their favorite uh uh movie was my favorite movie and i kind of like the the thing that i did that really would that really kind of kick-started my writing i guess was that i took a year off from dating after a particularly demoralizing breakup. And I was like, I'm doing the same thing and expecting a different result, which is just, I'm expecting men to do for me what I can't, or I'm unwilling to do for myself, which is like accept myself or like listen to myself. And or it's like, like, pick your own favorite color. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and so I remember sitting on, and I've, I've said this before in my podcast, but I, I remember sitting um, after this break, I remember sitting on the East river and like looking out into the water and committing to date myself the way that I dated men and to date writing the way that I dated men, which is to like fixate on it and do it all the time. Wow. Yeah. And then what about Dr. John? Like, when did, they, when did he come into your life? Um, it's funny because I remember going to, the first time I went to Dr. John, I had, I had gotten a referral from a, a person I had seen while I was at Sarah Lawrence. And she had a friend in the city who was a therapist. Um, and he's a gay therapist. He, his practice was on Gay Street for a little while in the West Village. And I was getting to, it was my, my first, my first boyfriend in Brooklyn. And I, I, he, he, <clears throat> was kind of stepping out on me a little bit with one of my friends and I I could foresee the end of our relationship. And I was like, this is going to devastate me. I need to start talking to somebody. So I made an appointment with Dr. John to help me deal with my first breakup. And we kind of, that was mm, seven, four, six, seven, eight, that was like maybe 10 years ago. And our relationship, I mean, as far as I'm concerned, that's a relationship to me. And we've been together for 10 years. And there have been times that we have not seen eye to eye on things. There are times that we have argued with each other. And I've had to listen. I've had to learn how to be with him as much as I've had to learn how to be with um, any other kind of man before. How do you, how often do you talk to him? Now it's a lot less because he's based in New York. So it's like when I go out there, we we do phone things sometimes. Um, I don't have as many pressing psychological concerns as I used to. I've so I guess a lot one of the great um advents of therapy in my life has been that I've kind of internalized Dr. John's voice. So I can ask him without him really having to be there. Sure. But uh you know I, I kind of check in like every three months or so. Yeah. But there's a the the thing is like anytime some kind of old issue is like remedied, some new one comes in and it's usually a, a part of that old issue that's found a new face. So it's like this whole road loneliness thing. And I'll just like talk to him about that 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 like uh discord of being like, I've kind of quote unquote made it 
and I'm still lonely. Like, what's that all about? You know, so little things like that. Yeah, well, I mean, were you like, and you grew up in isolation or in some degree of isolation. I mean, especially to people who had like a more suburban or urban upbringing, like living on a reservation, kind of like you said, sitting on your porch, your neighbors are, they're there, but they're kind of down the down the road a bit. Yeah, I mean, I, I guess like it's in some ways like kind of physical isolation, but in a very codependent environment. So that's that kind of, in a way, I think that probably informed my distaste of romantic relationships because I was just, I was surrounded by people who were codependent and I've done the opposite, which is like be super independent, which is not a remedy of codependency. Like there's a way of being with somebody without being all into them. But that's, I just kind of didn't have a model for that. So I didn't know how to do that, which is why when I took my year off from dating and I was like, I, I need to break with this pattern, like this whole pattern of, of throwing yourself into a relationship I, that seemed normal to me was like, no, this is bad. <laughs> like, like, like getting that intense, mm-hmm. like that quick, like where you want at least people who was like zero to 60. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, I think now that my self-esteem comes from what I make and do in the world, I'm more in control of that. Yeah. Well, what, and what about like as a, as a young person, um, like being gay on a reservation, like dating on a reservation, going to school on a reservation. Like how big of a community was it? Well, like, I didn't go to school on the res. Um, there was an elementary school in the next town over that I went to. And then later on further out to a high school, it's just very remote. Um, and I didn't really, I mean, I dated off like, I, you know, I'd go to punk shows as a teenager and you know, I kind of meet boys there. I didn't, the community is really small. It's like 300 people. There are more reservations in San Diego County than in any other county in the United States, but they're all very, very small. There used to be a, a much larger one that the county, that, that San Diego, as the city got bigger and needed water and you know, there was water flowing through our res and like they broke it. It's just tale as old as time. It's like basically indigenous extermination. Right. We had our own little trail of tears. Um, but, uh, the the community itself again like i it it was a being gay on the res wasn't a problem for me when did Uh, you come out i came out when i was like 15 maybe um i didn't experience homophobia from people on the reservation i experienced homophobia from people outside the reservation i experienced homophobia in school like i didn't experience homophobia at home because san diego is kind of a conservative town yeah and especially east county where i was living you know you would see neo-nazi and kkk people out there like it's it's it was any anybody who's surprised by the current administration and political thing they i knew that was coming i l- grew up around those people i knew who they were i went to school with them like i fought with them on the bus you know what i mean like they don't surprise me yeah do you think do you have a, you have hope like do you think that there's a possibility that we're going to come out of this and somehow rejuvenate or repair or be better not if the answer is continued late stage capitalism and heteropatriarchy like there is something that needs to fundamentally change about the system i think in a lot of ways and this is something that i that um i I read uh on morgan parker's uh twitter page i think it's pinned to the top of her page if you want to check it at morgan apple on twitter uh america was a really bad idea and i think america was a really bad idea because it because it's contingent upon the uh subjugation and extermination of indigenous people and um black slavery and labor and the any idea that america is an exceptional country is is a fabrication in order to cover up with the fact that it it was able to be a major economic power because of those two things. Yeah, I think like the like the America's self-perception or the the perception of America that we're often fed by the political class 
you know, there are virtues to America, but I feel like the presentation of them is ballooned out of proportion to these like fundamental sins. Mm-hmm. And I, you know, I don't know what you're going to do. You can't like, what are we going to do? Like just everybody like leave and go back to Europe or, you know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. Like it's here. America's a thing. Like, how do we possibly address the karma of this country? Like the the best idea that I've heard is the idea of reparations, mm-hmm. like serious reparations, reparations that uh, try to make it right and try to like make formalized um, an apology and a, an, an acknowledgement of wrongdoing. Yeah, I mean, at least you right. know what I mean. Like uh, it's 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 um, a system and uh, and a an oppressiveness and a, and, and, and a subjugation that is not really examined and oftentimes denied. I mean, if you look at like what's going on in sort of like the, the, the right sort of propaganda wing, um, it's a complete denial that anything ever happened. And if the system continues to deny its part in, in genocide and subjugation and all the, and, and, and oppression and all that kind of stuff, there can't be a remedy. Um, but I'm just trying to write, you know what I mean? I'm just trying to live here day to day. I'm trying to get up because it's hard enough to write. You know what I mean? It's hard enough to do that every day. It is the worst job in America. I mean, there are worse jobs, obviously, but it is very difficult because you can do anything but it. And I think, and it just, it's a, there, when nobody ever told me that all parts of this job are horrible. It's like the making of the thing and it just, it's like fecal essence that just you feel like it attaches to you and it it follows you wherever you go everything is bad everything like every draft is a shitty draft like nothing is ever finished or perfect or done you just have to say i'm done i'm ready to move on to the next thing that's why when people like that made me kinder to books because i'm just willing to give it up if anybody finishes anything and when people talk like with 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 people being critical of people's work i understand that but it's like I know what happened. You were like, oh, I can't do this anymore. Like when people are like, oh, this is an inconsistency with this part of the book, and I don't like the way that this ended. And it's like they were just done. They were really just done with it. Like <laughs> it's not a, a failure of the writer. I don't think necessarily. It's more just like the re- the recognition that things, other things, must be done. Yeah. Well, and I, I'm right there with you. Like anybody who finishes a book, regardless of its publication status or the success that it has in the marketplace. Once you've gone through the process of trying to write one of these things, unless you're one of these rare creatures who like, it's a joy, you know, (laughs) I know one person like that and I actively resent him. Hello, Joseph Osmondson. I hate you. (laughs) He likes it. I'm like, you are a masochist. Like, I don't understand the, the, I don't understand the, I understand, um, the, 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 the feeling of, uh, of, of being satisfied. You know what I mean? I understand the feeling of uh, uh, being proud of something, or at least to 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 uh, get other. Because I, I I'm very osmotic with feelings, so it's like if somebody's feeling something around me, it's easy that I catch that feeling. And if somebody is like enjoys it, I sort of enjoy their enjoyment. You know what I mean? Um, but I've never felt like when well, I'm writing that this is great or I'm having a great time. It's more like this is less hurtful than the last time. Maybe this is like less painful, slightly less painful. Yeah. It's like the thing that I'm working on now, um, in, within the past few days, I've understood things about the work. And it, again, it's like a screenplay. And so it's like entering into this world of sort of narrative fiction that 
I never asked to do. I didn't know. I, like somebody was like, I'll give you this money if you make this thing. And I was like, sure, I'll do it. No problem. Um, but it has confounded me and plot confounds me in a way that, I mean, I write long poems. It's not above the pale that I have narrative, that I have, that I invite narrative into my work. You know what I mean? In ways that maybe some poems don't always do, but plot. And it's just so sad because you make these characters and then you, you identify what they want and you identify what they're most afraid of. And you, you, you scare them with the thing that they're most afraid of and you make it hard as hell for them to get what they want. (laughs) And then you just like watch them bang their head against a wall. And it's like, do I, should I do this to this person? (laughs) Like in order to, to make dramatic things happen, which is, it's a medium of drama People have to have secrets from each other. People have to get in fights with each other. People have to hate each other. People have to not want what's best. And I'm I'm out here trying to live my life, like, generously. And I have to write people who are dicks. Yeah. And that's um, a little bit of a mindfuck. Uh, yeah. Well, and, and uh, I don't know. There's something about, like, really heavy, like, like heavy plotting. I struggle with it, too. I get. I don't know. I don't, I don't want to use the word artificial, but that's probably not right. That's not the right attitude. I have to Google like, what do people do? <laughs> like, people have, like they go on whale watching these. Like, they have book clubs or something. Or, like, they have like careers. Like, what do people do? I don't know because I don't do. All I do is write. <laughs> yeah. So it's like I have to be like um and like and the thing that I'm 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 writing like I said like I've I've figured out more of the plot and more of the it it, it I wouldn't say that I enjoy it, but it it, it there's like a like, you know, after you take a shot and you have like that tingling in your ears, it's like kind of hot. You like, mean like a shot of alcohol? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, that's kind of what it feels like. Like, there's like some kind of um, feeling of being under the influence that I, f- that, that when it's really doing its, when the work is doing its job and when I'm doing my job, I sort of feel, which is, I think, why later on when I'm presented with my work, I'm like, did I do that? Right, right. I did that, didn't I? But yeah. I don't. I don't know where it came from. I don't know. But I'm not one of these people who's like into inspiration or the muse or whatever. I'm into hard work. But but still, I'll look at it. And I can't deny that there is something divine about creation. You know what I mean? And then like looking at it and being like, I don't remember doing that. But I guess I did. I mean, I'm taking credit for it because I'm cashing this check. But like, I don't... Who did that? Right. I guess it was me. You were like the channel. Yeah. You're yeah, channeling yeah. it. But I also I also feel like if you're working in a narrative vein and you're playing puppet master or whatever, on the days where things are going well, the sense of loneliness that tends to plague writers is less. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's less lonely on those days. Yeah, and, and especially like if you're lucky enough to actually have an audience or you're lucky enough to have a publisher or you're lucky enough to have an editor or whatever, you there is the faith that somebody is going to read it at some point, even if you never know. So that is like kind of what I'm also writing about in Feed, which is like this sort of message in a bottle uh, the feeling of writing and understanding that like other people get fed by it was like this Molly Shannon um, a movie called uh, Year of the Dog I think it was or yeah, she like yeah, plays yeah. a crazy dog lady quote unquote um, and and she's just like she has this monologue at the end where she's like you know some people their love is like love is their love is all around us and and it, and it takes so many different forms there's like like love and partnership uh, uh you know boyfriend or girlfriend husband wife whatever whatever um there's like love of children there's love of material things and just like her love of dogs is the thing that feeds her 
And similarly, I had to be like, this thing of writing, this, this advent or this, this, this thing of writing is the thing that feeds me. It's, it, it's different love than other love. You know, I don't think, I don't know. Mm, okay. I'm going to say, I'm going to say this and, and I, you know, I will go back on this at some point in the future probably, but I don't know that a person could, could really, I don't know. I don't know. I'm just saying, cause it's never happened before. I don't know that I could find fulfillment in a partner the way I find fulfillment in writing, you know? And th- I don't know if I could be fed by a romantic partner the way that I get fed by writing. I, you know, I, I can't. I, I can't say that's not. Uh, that's not uh, true. I feel like I have friends whose books are their children, mm-hmm. and who kind of feel a sense of like paternal and mater- or maternal love or connection to their creative work, and I get that. Mm-hmm. Um, well, it is your legacy in the way that children are your legacy, you right. know, um, and that they will live on after you, um, if you know. If, if it's not like Fahrenheit 451 or whatever, but like, um, but the, the, the thing though, the really, really frustrating thing, um, is that with poems more or less, I would, you know, they say kill your darlings or whatever, but more or less I've been able to save things like more or less. I was, I, I've been able to, to keep what I've written, um, refine it more, find more vigorous or better words or whatever. But like whatever idea I've had, I've, I, I've kind of like, I've sanded away until I made a beautiful object or I made a thing with, narrative fucking fiction writing in the way that I'm doing it now. Like I'll write and then just have to delete. And I'm like, but I had to delete. I just, it'll be something like where I have these two people waking up in bed together and then they have a whole conversation and they have a whole day. And then I realize, no, actually that person has to leave before the other one gets up. And then like fucking 15 pages of shit is just <laughs> down the drain. And I have less <laughs> words and pages than I had the day before. And that infuriates me. And I don't know any other way because I do this outline thing. I write these, I do these like proposed skeletal structures, but nothing is, nothing is, I don't know anything until I write it out. And then now, and then this character's gone. And then, then that character's gone. And there's like this new person and like, where did you all come from? (laughs) So I'm, I don't know. Do you have any advice? (laughs) Well, I mean, I think that's the nature of it. I feel like, I mean, if you're talking about screenwriting, which is what you're talking about. Yeah. I mean, I think like you have some kind of outline going in typically because it's a defined form and then you deviate from it. Yeah. That's normal. It sucks. But it's demoralizing demoralizing. to lose pages and to lose character and just to realize you're on the wrong track. You're like, oh, fuck. And to know that you're on the wrong track while you're doing it, but you have to do it in order to figure out what the right track is. That is the hardest part because it's like, it's like, it's like you're pumping sewage into your computer. Like it's coming (laughs) out of your fingers. And like, again, I could do anything else. Like I could be playing Candy Crush Friends right now. um, I could be on the phone with my best friend. And, nope, I've got to sit here and write this shit, like right. this absolute fecal matter. And then like print it out, go over it with a red pen, figure out what the right thing is and do it all over again. And then like five days later, delete that whole section. It's just like, I don't. It's, How did you get into screenwriting? I was commissioned by a, a, a production company in New York called Cinereach. How did to, that happen? They liked my books. And the guy, um, this guy, Mike, um, who who was a part of the company, 
um, who'd kind of been like a little like a fixture in my life to a certain extent in the sense that I knew him as like Mike from around. Like, you know, that person from around that you see them at that one party or there was this um, party called Queers, Beers and Rears in the Lower <laughs> East Side in, in New York. And they would have a, a few punk bands come in every month. And I didn't know that because I, I moved to New York and then that was there. I didn't know that that could be taken away. Like, I didn't know how special it was. But I would go every month and they would have three new three queer bands, three queer punk bands every single month. And I would see him at that. He was like, you know, those in the nebulous way that you know people that it's like that, that like that's um, uh, uh, the high school best friend of my roommate's freshman year college roommate, you know, something nebulous like that, but it always kind of seemed around. And I remember one time, uh, it was like when I was in the, I was in um, Astoria. Uh, uh, I had an office space in Astoria when I was writing, I was uh, finishing up Nature Poem, I think. And I probably put something on Facebook like, I'm in Astoria, like da da da. Or no, it was Long Island City. And, um, and Mike got in touch. He was like, oh, do you want me to take you out to like a bar around here, like a cafe? Do you want to get to know the neighborhood? And so we went out and he was like, so how's poetry doing? And I was like, mm. and again, this is like midway through edits of my second book. And I was like, you know, it's like great or whatever. I'm like, great. I'm, I'm glad I found my thing. Um, I found, I'm glad I found my medicine. But like, ugh, there is no money in this. It's if hard. somebody gave me X amount of thousands and thousands of dollars and was like go write this thing i would go write that thing like i can't sell out fast enough are you kidding me i want (laughs) get me on a coke commercial i will write fucking slogans for pepsi i don't know just i want to make money and i have this talent and i need to do this thing um and about a year later i was on a beach with an ex-boyfriend and we had been joking about peeing on each other because um (laughs) there was jellyfishes in the water and i was like i hope you're okay with me peeing on you and he was like hmm and I, I learned that day that he really liked to get peed on. So, like, that started a new advent of my relationship with him. <laughs> I got a call from this Mike from around. And uh, he was like, I want to talk to you about an opportunity. Will you come into my office? It's, like, on Fifth Avenue. And I was like, sure. And my therapist is on Fifth Avenue. So, I was thinking of it like an office like that, like a, like a cubicle. Yeah. So, I go there. Uh, I open this. I, and I open the door. And this office is just, it takes up so much of this floor of this building and one then office? there's like it's just one office and it's like there's like a, a meeting room in the center and a spiral staircase that leads up to a second floor that has like a viewing room and there's like all these other cubicles around and it was just him and like the like some one of the other people that that works there and i was like oh shit and i was like looking at all the posters around and i was like oh you made all these. These aren't decoration. You made all these movies. And the thing about living in New York or anywhere else is like everyone is doing something. Everyone is a musician or everyone is a writer. Or everyone is an actor. Or everyone does move. But like you hear that so often that it kind of becomes like white noise because they're like, but what have you done lately? Right. You know what I mean? Or are you an actor or are you a waiter? You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> uh, I, so I knew that he had done something in movies, but I just, everyone's doing something. And I was like, oh shit. And he had like co-founded this company. And I was like, uh, and he was like, you know, remember last year when you said, if somebody gave me all this money to write this thing, I would write this thing. He was like, would you write this thing? And I was like, inside, I was like dying. I was screaming because I, I didn't know what I was getting myself into. I was like, But then I saw the amount and I was like, you know what? <laughs> Absolutely. And it will be on time. And yeah. I made more money uh, in the course of my seven month contract with them than I had made in 15 years of writing poetry, like sure. significantly more. And I was like, you know what? And I kind of, I took to the medium in the sense that like, I found the structure really comforting because before writing features, I had just kind of seen them as like these magical things that come out of nowhere. And I didn't, I'd never watched or read for 
um, I'd always I'd always watch and read for escape and never to understand what was going on. And once I learned the three act structure and this happens on page five and this happens on page 25 How and this happens on page 55, just reading, you but know, reading scripts or reading books about screenwriting, uh, both. And like the, the thing that they suggested that I do that was extremely helpful was like, read, they were like, read the thing, watch the thing and then read the thing again to see how they translate each other. Huh. Um, so there's like reading books about screenwriting, Which talking ones? to screenwriters, the one cat one, you know, the save the cat, save the cat. Yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah that's a good one. Like, it's practical. Yeah. And, and I don't agree with everything in that book. I mean, but it's like, this is how you write a commercial film. And I was like, all right, that's a way to write a commercial film. And I agreed with a lot of it. Um, and I think there are ways in which, you know, you can complicate it as well. But I needed to learn the basic thing before I could even hope to to play with the, the medium at all. Right. Like, I'm a formalist. Like, I started writing poetry by doing, like, I learned how to do sestinas. I learned how to do sonnets. I learned how to do villanelles. I learned how to do, you know, high buns and, 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 and pantoums and all that kind of, those were the first poems that I ever wrote. And I wrote those until I could do them in my sleep. They weren't very interesting, but I knew what I was working with. So when I do these long poems and this free verse and stuff, it's with a deep understanding of poetic structure. And similarly, like, I had to learn, I mean, my first couple of months trying to do this, I was out of my brain because I was like, I don't know what I'm writing about. I don't know what I'm doing. And then I had fiction friends of mine be like, well, your character has to have a desire um, and you have to make it really hard for them to get that thing. And they're like, and if they're content in this part, then they have to be fucked up in this part. You know, it was like kind of mapping out what it is that plot does. Um, and, and it's artifice, right? So it's like, and it's, and it's, and it's, it's artifice, and, but it's also ancient and it's foundational and it's everywhere you read. And so I started, I started to read with an eye for what was happening. And I started watching with like my hand on the timestamp right. being like, Oh, yep. Five minutes in, that's what happens. So this person inciting says that. Incident. Yep, exactly. I'm like, this is the, the world turned upside down and this is like the midpoint. And this is like, okay. And this is where they reference death. And it's like, it, it all became so transparent to me isn't it weird how we do like i mean it's easy to like poo poo um the conventions of commercial storytelling mm -hmm. but we, we, I, we have we have these expectations of what a narrative is supposed to do and it's actually extremely difficult but i mean okay it's it's not the hardest thing i've ever done um but it's but but um doing a con doing something innovating on a convention like it's so hard so that's i think a lot of people end up just burning it all down and being like i'm gonna do this weird other thing but i actually want to write commercial film i want to write conventional commercial films but with characters who i understand and i identify with characters who are queer maybe non-binary uh native especially you know but like and within that what does what would a conventional story be like and that is that what you were hired to write? Or was it like an... A, a, they were... Honestly, like it... I've, I must have done something good in a past life because all of my um, my publishing experiences and, and, and my feature experiences, like they've all been great. I hear a lot of horror stories and thankfully I haven't... I haven't had one, um, but they were just kind of like, here's this check and um, do whatever you want. They, but that was actually extremely hard because they didn't, they didn't hire me for a project. They were just like, we want to know what film you would make. And I had to learn what movies actually were. And I, and that learning curve was so steep. <laughs> yeah, but it's like, but it's good. You just get thrown into the fire. Yeah. And you know, if you have a, a certain amount of work ethic and ambition and, uh, 
willingness to kind of roll your sleeves up, you're going to learn it. And I learned, I think, I don't know if I learned anything necessarily, but I think what I, what I learned is how to ask the right questions. Like, I, I just wish I knew, obviously, like, I, I wish I knew now a year ago, you know, or it just there's so much time I feel like I wasted in order to figure out very basic things <laughs> like, like, like that, that, that so much base was like revelation to me, um, bothers me, but I don't know how I would have learned it any other way. Well, and so where are you now? How many features have you written? Well, I'm working on one with a producer out here. Um, I have a writing partner in Seattle who I'm working on a couple of scripts with. Um, I have a writing partner in San Francisco who we're working on an idea right now. Um, honestly, like the first one that I wrote, I had to write on my own. And I feel like I, what I did in seven months, I was able to do in like 17 minutes with a writing partner. I, why, why is, I'm the same way. Why is screenwriting... Because like poetry, it's not normal to work in tandem with somebody. No. But working I'm, with a partner on a screenplay is like so much better. It's so much better. I don't ever want to... And I want to write movies with everybody. You know what I mean? Like I figured out the thing that I want to do for the next good chunk of my life. Um, and I love working with other people because there is just so much more. Like if I... Again, if I... The, the, my problem with this project I'm working on now is I'm the only one. So I'm like Googling what do people do? But when I'm in the room with somebody and we're like, all right, like let's talk about... All right, so this pop star has a body double, right? And the body double, it's like an all about Eve situation. The body double doesn't want to give up the spotlight after the tour is over. So like, let's talk about then who is she? And then where does she come from? And like, what's her Wikipedia page? You know what I mean? And so it's like getting to understand another... And, and, and also having this... And I think this came from like doing improv for a minute. This sort of yes ending and like working on ideas with somebody and trying to create an environment where any suggestion is fine and it just like might change later on um that really helped and just like having the people that i've worked with um are curious in a way that i'm curious i think and um never it never feels like weird or bullying or like your ideas are getting shot down it's just like okay, but if this person is this way, do you think this is blah, 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 blah? And then like getting to a point and I did like, uh, my, my friend from Seattle came down like a couple weeks ago, we were like workshopping these two things. And I was like, I don't think they have a kid. I think all that work we did to make them have a kid is just like counterintuitive. And it's like eating up a lot of our resources. And what happens if the kid goes? And it's like a pain in the ass to direct children. <laughs> Perhaps. <laughs> uh, but yeah, I, I, I just feel like I work through ideas faster and I get to, and I, what I lack um, in understanding plot, they have. I'm so much better at just writing every single day and I'm really good with dialogue. <laughs> um, and so it's like the way that we work it out or the way that I've worked out with them is, um, you know, we come up with the idea, we do the treatments and I do the shitty, 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 shitty rough draft. And then we get together, we talk it over. Then they do another, they go off and do another draft. Um, I work on something else and then like we come back together and like, I do like the final Passover and like, you know, we'll do the, and, and just make sure the dialogue is what it's supposed to be. It's so much faster. It's so much faster. It's like you have, we have double the brain power. Yeah. And, and then the, the, the thing is that like some ideas work with some people and some ideas work with other people. So, um, I just, again, like, and I have like, so I, I have those things in the, in the, in the, those irons in the fire or whatever. But then I also just have like five other ideas for things that like, when those are done, I can go work on like my horror movie that I want to write. Like I want to have the, my, my uh, romantic comedy that I want to write. You know what I mean? I'm, I'm in, in, in all, I want to do Indians in space. You know what I mean? So it's like, I have, <laughs> I have, I have ideas that I just need to be able to sit with for a while, but it's, but I love it because I don't have any kind of 
when I finish a project, I, I don't have any kind of, for, for lack of a better word, like postpartum. You know what I mean? It's like, cause I'm always kind of working on something new. So it's like, I, and also it helps me not be such a control freak with any one given project because it's like, I'm, I'm viewing it in, 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 in a sea of other projects that I'm working on. And so like, I get less precious with ideas and with characters and with things. And so I'm more amenable to, um, to, to people's suggestions. And, and it's made me better as a writer and better getting edited as well. You, you don't seem to have any shortage of ideas. Mm, no, I don't think so. <laughs> so that, that part of it's easy. Yeah. 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 Like you're generative. Yeah. Or, or, um, it's easy for me to ide- uh, to generate ideas with people as well. Mm-hmm. If, even if we sit there and we haven't done any work yet and it's like, okay, so generally what is it that you're interested in? Okay. Relationships between fathers and sons. All right. Let's take a look at that. Now, uh, what makes an, let's, let's talk about some things that could potentially invert this relationship. So a parent gets older or a child gets rich or, you know, like ways in which we can challenge. So understanding the conventions, how we challenge the conventions. And then I figure out what interests me about that. And it's just, Huh. It's it, just so much better than working on my own. It's fun to ideate in conversation. Yeah. Like just talking to somebody. Yeah. Like that, like sitting at a cafe, mm-hmm. coming up with ideas rather than just kind of sitting there, like staring at your keyboard or whatever. Yeah. And just kind of trying to will it to happen and nothing's happening. And then you, then I feel like it's a personal failing because I haven't figured out what the idea is. <laughs> I, it, yeah. It's, I guess in a way that, you know, you're co-parenting or you're sharing ownership over something or, you know, I, I don't feel like the burden of its shittiness and, but I also get to share in its joy. Right. Well, uh, what is your actual, I mean, you write in the mornings. Do you have like a, do you have like a really rigorous, like uh, dedicated practice? I do. Um, in the morning, like the first things first, I just play 20 minutes of Candy Crush. <laughs> I just have to give myself a thing to just like kind of dissociate. And then I'll read something. Um, depending on what I did the day before, either I've come, I've like tried to sort of think through some problems that I was having, or I need just some new idea like i need a new scene or i need a new i need a new thing like i need a new character or i need them to do something different or i've kind of identified wh- how people are pulling their weight in certain areas and then just kind of refining that so usually i'll do that like um for a few hours ar- until about noon and then i'll take my walk usually i walk over to lachmont like get coffee or whatever actually i don't drink coffee anymore but like get like a tea and a scone or something and just kind of like clear my head and then kind of come back down and uh and and re-engage with what it is that i'm doing and then read a script or watch a movie. What about poetry? Where does that, where does that fit? It's, I'm not working on, like, I just finished my fourth, I finished the final draft of my fourth book. So that is going to blurbers right now. So it's like, I kind of put that to bed and in my mind, and it might be my last thing, you know, I might, I, I, I might be transitioning out of, it's funny because my editor was like, this is so much more narrative and it's so much more, there's so much more plot in this and there's like actual dialogue and characters. He's like, I can see the transition between this and the next thing that you write. Um, but you know, I came up as a poet, I'll die as a poet. I don't know when the next thing is going to be, but I mean, I wrote four books in four years. So I think I can like put that to bed for a little while. You know what I mean? Let let the, let the girls catch up and I can go work on these other things. Well, it's such a pleasure to meet you. Nice to meet you too. I appreciate you coming over. I congratulate you on all of the different successes that you're having and i wish you well thank you take care all right that's tommy pico his books include irl nature poem junk and the forthcoming feed be on the lookout you can find him on the internet at tommy-pico.com his twitter handle is at hey 
Tommy Pico. Go get your copies. Just get the whole collection. Just buy all of them. Thanks to Kill Rockstars and the band Stereo Total, as always, for the theme song music. Thank you to Tiger in My Tank for the interstitial music. Don't forget about the Other People app. It's free. Go get the Other People app. If you want to support this program, your support makes a difference. You can do that at patreon.com slash otherpplpod. If you would like to write to me, the address is letters at otherppl.com. I, uh... What am I forgetting? I think that's it. Right? I have a friend... uh, I was talking to my friend this week about this, like, trend in the, uh, you know, the lit community, like literary fiction and nonfiction involving, like, gritty authenticity and, like, edginess. I'm not even going to get into it. (laughs) 